Investors Chronicle. Hello and welcome back to the IC Interviews. I'm very sorry that we didn't publish a podcast last week, but we're more than making up for it this week with today's guest, Ian McCombie, manager of Bailey Gifford UK Growth Trust and lead manager of Bailey Gifford's UK Core Strategy. Ian was also a manager on a number of global funds and became a partner at Bailey Gifford in 2005. Ian, thank you for joining me. How are you? Fine, thanks, Mary. Well, I've been wanting to interview for ages because you've got such an interesting background for our readers and listeners, um, being a global manager with a UK focus. So to start us off, how do you feel about the opportunity among UK growth stocks and how does it compare with what you can find in other geographies? Well, I think as a UK investor, I think there are plenty of growth opportunities. And I think there's a kind of myth that somehow you can't find interesting kind of companies in the UK. And what we're trying to do is find about 45 or so kind of names and from a universe of over 500. So we are being quite picky in what we're looking for, but... I think you can find plenty of companies in, in, in the UK. Um, obviously, globally, if you're looking from a global perspective, there are more companies to pick from. Obviously, there's just it's a bigger bigger universe. But you know what we have in the UK and in, in the Bailey Gifford UK equity team is very experienced people who know the market really well. So what we're partly trying to do is to find companies at that early growth stage, which I think is usually very lucrative for investors. Yeah, and what are the key metrics that you're looking for when trying to find a UK growth company? Yeah, it's an, it's an interesting one, Mary. I mean, it's the opportunity. What is the opportunity that, that you can see that business doing? Where could that business be in five or 10 years' time? You know, do, do the management have that vision, that, that ambition to grow the business? And these are really, really important kind of questions you've got to ask yourself. And it's not about what's going to happen in the next six months or the next year. It's where's that business going to be in five or 10 years time? And can it finance that? These are the kind of key things that we're trying to look at. Great. Well, I'm going to ask you more specifically about individual companies um, later on. But before we get there, I think a criticism of the UK stock market is that it's not competitive enough. And we had the Hill Review, which suggested a number of changes, some of which have been implemented. Um, some of them were the allowing dual-class share structures, for example, um, a premium listing, so they could be included in indices. How do you feel about um, the regulations around the UK stock market, and do you think it should be made more competitive, or some people worry that this might lead to slacker governance standards? Yeah, it's it's a, it's it's an interesting kind of area to talk about, Mary. I mean, I think on the regulatory side, um, you've got to be very careful about um, saying, you know, that you know, having, for example, you know, non-voting shares is a good, always a good thing. I think in some circumstances, we can see that globally, it's been a great thing for companies to think long term, and I think that's the, really the key point: is is the business being run on a long term basis? And if, if sometimes, you know, not, you know, these types of class of shares helps companies to do that, I think that's a good thing. But obviously you can think of perhaps, you know, more, you know, example in the UK market at the moment where there's a kind of a controversy around, you know, the, the hot group where that, that's not kind of worked out so well. And, and, I, and I think it's the old story into Mary that it works until it doesn't. And, and I think that these are the things you've got to be careful about. But what we do at Bailey Gifford is try to look at it on an individual basis. You know, so, so it's not saying, you know, you start off with a prejudice that this is a good or a bad thing. It's let's look at this individual company. Let's look at the management, the board and so on. What are they trying to do? And um, sometimes we're very happy globally to back companies with, you know, different class voting shares. And other times we're just not comfortable. And it's nothing to do with 
the principle. It's more just the individual company and, and the people that are running it. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So you don't feel like because of the UK structure, you're maybe missing out on opportunities that might otherwise be here. I mean, I, I think the thing that, that's clear is the UK has lacked a lot of technology businesses that, that have, um, you know, with other markets like the US in particular, have, have, have a, is a, is a large and thriving market. And frankly, we haven't helped ourselves, you know, like things like, like Arm Holdings, which was a, a great British success story. Um, and, and too many shareholders sold out when the board kind of lost confidence and decided to, to sell out to, to, to SoftBank. We voted against that. We were the biggest shareholder. Um, we thought that was a terrible decision um, because, you know, but what people were worried about was the short term because they'd have to reinvest in the business to keep growing for the long term. And some people said, well, that's not very good. You know, profits are going to go down the next three years. But if you're thinking 10 years, that's what they had to do. And the fact that even under SoftBank, it doesn't look because they have done that and they've lost a lot of ground to other players, which is a real shame. Yeah. Now, I know you are long-term investors, as you say, but inflation is something that a lot of investors are worried about at the moment. It feels like policymakers will be happy to let it run for a while. This affects companies in lots of different ways with rising input prices, rising energy prices, rising staffing costs. How do you think about inflation and has it affected any of your investment decisions? Um, I mean, the short answer is no. But you're, you're absolutely right to, to focus actually when you talked about management, how, how do they juggle it? And, and I think that's really, I always think it's the, the factor that's not on share prices that I think investors are really going to think about is, is the management team. How are they handling these issues that you, you, you rightly kind of you point out? And I think a good management team doesn't necessarily always you know, can solve every problem, but it can anticipate problems and start to manage them. And I don't think, you know, everyone's talking about inflation at the moment, and then rightly so, because it hasn't been an issue for, for a while. But other times people will be talking to me about currency, you know, the, the pound being weak or strong, and how does that how does that impact a business? The reality, I think, is that businesses are always having to juggle these things. And really what, what, what you're trying to do is to see, well, does the company have pricing power or not? And probably for a lot of businesses, they haven't had to worry about that for a long time. Now we're starting to see that kind of coming through. And, you know, take an example, um, a company called Volution, which is one of our bigger holdings in, 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 in the fund. It makes kind of um, fans and clean air solutions. I think they've put through three price increases in the UK so far in the last 12 months to kind of combat, you know, um, some of the input prices. And they've all stuck. Now, that's that's a kind of a good sign for to me for business that, you know, the client, the, the, the customers really value that product. And the fact that they're going to have to just pay pay for it. Now, what I'm trying to say to them is, we had a meeting with them recently. Is look, it's not just about you know the short term. What about the long term? Couldn't you be using this as a competitive advantage? Because actually, it's not just about pricing, uh, Mary. It's also something about availability of product. As we all know, there's supply chain issues. Actually, they have a you know a manufacturing base in in Reading. They are actually able to supply their customers. Some of the people who've been importing from China are not. Now that's a great long-term kind of growth story. So, and, and they're being smart about that. They're not just saying well, we can charge as high, much as we want at the moment. It's about how do we grow our market share long-term. That's interesting. And do you think because you are looking for these long-term quality companies that maybe they will be, they're the types of companies that would be more resilient than other parts of the market? Well, I mean, it's horses to fortune, isn't it? By saying that your business are always more resilient than others. I've, I'm, 
you'd always hope on, on a portfolio sense that would be true. There are always going to be some businesses that are going to have some some challenges within that. But I think to me, if you're running the business for the long term, um, you will manage your way through these issues. Um, and what we're trying, to, certainly trying to avoid are businesses where um, there isn't much pricing power or you're, you're very much vulnerable to these things. We're trying to weed these kind of businesses out from, you know, in our kind of, you know, business analysis when we're trying to invest in companies. Because as you said earlier, Mary, you know, our portfolio turnover is very low. It's sort of 5%, you know, type thing. So, you know, we, we try and hold companies for a long period of time. And that's why we think, you know, the, the quality of the business, the quality of the management, the quality of the growth opportunity are so important to talk about. Do you feel Bailey Gifford's got a very distinct company style um, for long-term growth? Do you feel that pushes you in a certain direction, or do you feel like you can you can do what you want, investment-wise? Well, I, I mean, we are growth investors, and 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 therefore, what what it means is you, you, there's large chunks of the market you just don't spend much time on because there's not we don't don't see the growth opportunity there. So we're not trying to say we cover the whole market. You know, we could spend all, we could send, we could hire lots and lots of people to be very, you know, frankly, run around looking at companies that are of interest to us. Why would we do that? What we're trying to do is focus our time on areas which are interesting. But, you know, still within that, there's a lot of businesses we, we, we just turn down. We just don't look, we, we, we do the analysis and we can't convince ourselves that they're, they're good enough to, to, to kind of, you know, sell something to, to fund that. So that, that's kind of that competition for capital type of thing. So um, we're always looking for new ideas, um, but we don't always, you know, take it up on that. And, and the fact that our portfolio turnover is so low, um, my, co- my, my co-manager, Melina, Melina will kind of tease me by saying, you know, we're, we're trying to stir up apathy at times because, you know, actually sometimes what you own in your portfolio is far more interesting than something that looks new, it's shiny, it's different, but it may not be necessarily as good as, as what you've got already. In this sort of long-term vein, Bailey Giffords, a number of Bailey Gifford funds have been moving more into private companies among the investment trusts. Um, Bailey Gifford UK Growth Trust can invest up to 10% in private companies. It looks to me like there are none in your portfolio, or at the time of your annual report at least. How do you see the relative attractiveness of private and public companies in the UK? Yeah, well, you're correct. We, we don't have anything at the moment, but we only actually only got permission earlier this year to, to actually invest in, in, in private companies. So it's, it's still for us and the trust. It's very early days in, in that process. We, we've actually looked at one or two ideas yet, but nothing has kind of kind of quite crossed the line yet. But, you know, watch this space, I suppose, would be, would be the thing. But what, what we're kind of trying to see and what other trusts at, at Bailey Gifford have seen is the fact that there are some very interesting businesses that potentially are coming to the market a bit later um, than they traditionally would have done when, when they when they flo- when, when they float, and potentially you, you can invest in these companies at an early stage. But just to be clear, what we've always said for 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 shareholders is that we don't see private as being different. What we're trying to find is the same types of businesses we're already investing in. So we're not suddenly going to lurch into you know early stage you know sort of highly speculative businesses. We're trying to find businesses we, we think have got this, this happened not to be quoted, but they have still that same kind of growth potential in them. Were you tempted to follow Scottish Mortgage into Blockchain.com? which is the UK's biggest <laughs> cryptocurrency company, which they invested uh, in earlier this year? Um, well, we didn't have the opportunity at that point, so you know, we'll never know, I suppose. But, um, but, but equally, I mean, I, I think there's other benefits that we've seen from Bailey Gifford having um, 
made these relationships. So, for example, we, we took part in the, the um, when Wise came to the market, you know, the, 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 the foreign exchange kind of business. Now, our private company's team had owned that for a number of years. They knew the company really well. I'd actually met them when they were still unquoted. So the fact that we built up quite a lot of knowledge about it gave us that confidence when it came to the market that we knew what this business was, was about and the track record. And therefore, we were able to kind of get comfortable to buy it because that's the thing I think it's always important to, to, to know, Mary, is when you're an IPO, often when you take part in it, you don't really have much information and it's all very much at the last minute. You're on a roadshow and so on, whereas the benefit of having the private companies team is we knew this business quite well before we kind of decided to, to invest in it, which I think was an advantage. Are there any other IPOs you've taken, you've participated in recently? Yeah, there's a couple actually. Um, one is um, um, Oxford Nanopore, which is, a, is another kind of, you know, really interesting kind of UK kind of technology business, which I'm sure a lot of people have heard of. It, it kind of competes with Illumina in terms of the kind of gene sequencing equipment. But there's another one which I, I, think, I suspect most people haven't heard of. It's a company called Existentia. Now, it's actually quoted in the US, but it's a, it's a British um, um, biotech business or healthcare business. And what it does is it uses AI to help um, drug discovery. And their insight is that they think that, you know, a lot of um, R&D by the big pharma companies is actually not, not, not very efficient. Whereas what they're trying to use is use artificial intelligence and, and systems to try and target much more. So that's a really interesting kind of area. It, it's, an, it's an early stage business in some respects, but they've got some really um, strong kind of backing from people like Bristol-Myers Squibb, um, Sanofi, um, Bayer, companies that have, have you know, partnered with um, Existentia on individual drugs. So it's kind of interesting that we think this is an area that, you know, healthcare is, is you know, which is a, not a new insight. Is a, is a, there's a lot of money spent there. It's not done very efficiently. And a company like this, could help that be done more more efficiently, which I think is really exciting. And and potentially they, they take a share of that, which could be very exciting. So that's examples of some companies you've bought recently. What types of what are the companies that you've sold most recently? Um, we've only sold two. Um, one was a company called James Fisher. It was a small holding, which we just decided actually that the, the, the growth story wasn't really panning out as we'd hoped. So we just said, well, actually, we've got better things to invest in. So we sold it. The other one we sold out to was Ultra Electronics, which um, actually you know has been subject to a, to a bid, so the share price has gone up a lot. We thought there was a kind of risk that this could get blocked in some respects, so we decided to to take our profits, substantial profits, and, and and sell it elsewhere. But that's all we've done there. But you know, again, the context, all these things that we're talking about, you know, portfolio turnover is certainly less than ten percent. So we're we're not doing a lot of trading. So I always think what we own is probably more important than all this kind of interesting stuff that we're talking about at the moment. Yeah conviction in your ideas exactly so on that theme it's interesting that financials is such a large um chunk of the portfolio mm-hmm. uh, why are you so keen on this sector with brokerage services in particular in particular yeah well i mean it's a couple of things mary i mean one is that for example we don't own banks so it's not as we like all financials actually we're looking for businesses we've got great growth potential and actually i think the uk has got a number of really terrific businesses um the, the wealth platforms we own um Hargreaves Lansdowne a company called Integrifin that owns um Transact um AJ Bell so all these businesses I think are, are doing really well you know there's a definite demand for savings um and it makes a lot of sense to have it on a platform and you know they are all doing different different business models again that's somebody said well why do you own all three well so they're all trying to do something slightly different 
but it's not mutually exclusive. We think they're all winners, but they're just targeting the markets in different ways, which I, I, I think is exciting. But we also like insurance or life insurance. We think, again, that's a, that's a, that's a, a really interesting area. We've got Prudential, which has got this terrific business um, in, in Asia. Um, but we've also got things like um, legal in general, which I, I think is doing a really you know, interesting job in, in the UK. It's a, it's, it's a tremendous um, investor in a lot of these really interesting areas that, 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 that we're crying out for in taking these long, long-term investments. So actually, it, it, it's, it's got, a, got a very interesting kind of business angle. And you've got a business like St. James's Place, which I guess is a bit controversial to some people. But if you look at it, its growth, it's been one of the great success stories in, 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 the, in the UK. Yeah, St. James's Place comes under criticism for having quite high fees mm-hmm. and poor fund performance. I think I remember there was a report by research firm Yodler earlier this year saying that eight out of 10 SJP funds have consistently underperformed. Um, how do you see the sort of long term outlook for the company against this backdrop? Yeah, well, I, I, I think the thing about costs is that and that's always the thing that all investors should be worrying about with, with all these types of businesses. But I think the thing that you, you're trying to compare, what are you comparing? Is it like for like? Because what St. James's Place clients is getting is advice. Um, and that's very different to say a DIY investor that's using a platform that's, you know, has no advisor and is looking for a kind of cheap fees. By definition, they're bound to probably have lower costs than somebody like a St. James's Place, where the advice is kind of bundled into that. Um, so you, you, it's what you want. And and what the St. James's Place um, product is trying to do is, to, is for people who, who need advice, who are probably not wanting to spend a lot of time thinking about it, they've got an advisor to do that for them. And they pay for that. Now, some of that cost is bundled up into these, these fees, which is not the case um, with some of these others. So yes, it looks... Um, expensive relative to, to to that, and sometimes that can mean that it, the fund is underperformed. But remember, they are paying the customers paying for advice, and because this is a regulated industry, where if you haven't done this properly and you haven't got the paperwork, the regulators will do these periodic inspections of that. Um, you, you can't do that for nothing, and 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 I think that the problem, actually, as we all know, is is is, or certainly those of us in the financial industry or who, who could comment on it, is is getting ever more complicated. Um, and particularly for things like pensions and so on, if you don't know what you're doing, you can potentially get into some quite um, expensive um, you know, tax penalties if you haven't been doing that. So people need advice. The problem for, our, for this country is we don't have enough advisors. Um, so actually, St. James's Place, I think, is part of the solution, not, not a problem. Um, we need more advisors rather than less advisors because, you know, frankly, there's so many minefields now that 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 that, that clients or prospective clients um, need to be kind of helped through because, and sadly, you know, you, you and I are probably the worst people. We're, we're interested in this area, but a lot of people are probably have got, you know, are more sensible and have got outside the interests who are who they don't want to worry about this stuff. So it's almost at that point about, you know, remember who who who's a client, who's a client being targeted here. It's very different to say you and I, who are kind of who can probably do these things. Is that the advice thing? I don't know if that makes sense at all. That makes absolute sense. Yes, we need more advisors. We also need more people to take out investors' chronicle subscriptions to <laughs> <laughs> help make their investment decisions. Um, on Hargreaves Landstone, mm-hmm. uh, you've got Hargreaves Landstone and AJ Bell. Your position in Hargreaves Landstone is bigger. Do you think it? Because it's it's got of the DIY platform market and it, it is quite a bit more expensive on its funds and you've got 
interactive investor which has a flat fee model which could be do you think hog, hog sandstone will be able to retain its position given it's um it is a bit more expensive and these flat fee rivals are coming through yeah i mean look i think what they would say um if, if you just look at it purely on price you're not looking at value and it's the same thing with st james's place it, it, it it's you, you pay sometimes what you get for, and, and some of these other services might be cheaper, but do they have the same levels of service or the variety of products that, that you can get? Um, what is interesting about Hargreaves, and I'm sure some of the other players like AJ Bell would say, well, you know, but we're still, um, we're cheaper. But what's interesting in both is they're both still growing. And, and that's what I said to you earlier, Mary, that it's not a mutually exclusive. It's not a kind of, you know, one wins, one loses. They're actually both winning. Um, and what, what Hargreaves, I think, is... Is, is remarkable is all people have been worried about this pricing thing for a while that they're not the cheapest in the market they continue to take market share so that's the kind of the interesting thing and, and, and therefore to me it would argue that it's not just about price it's about other kind of you know is it trust to the brand is, is it about the quality of the service that they're getting from that you know the, the ease of actually being able to speak to people on the help the help desk when you've got a problem there are things like that that I think um, people think about on just the security of it. Do you, want, do you want to put your life savings in a platform you've never heard of? And, you know, what happens if something went wrong? You know, Hargis is a FTSE 100 company. It's a very strong financial business. You know, there, there are a lot of different factors, which I think it's not just about price. Um, otherwise, I think, you know, the market would, market shares wouldn't be where they are. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. And you see surveys time and again saying that people care more about how easy it is to use than they do about price. Another company, which I think is a fantastic company, is measuring device maker Renishaw. Mm-hmm. Um, it earlier this year it announced that it wanted to take itself um, private. That hasn't happened. Um, what's your outlook for Renishaw from here? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the, the backdrop was that the two the two founders of Renishaw, who are you know getting on a bit, decided they wanted to thought they should sell the business. But they couldn't because they wanted to attach conditions to whoever bought the business. And ultimately, they couldn't agree terms with, with any of the buyers. Um, but in a funny way, you know, fundamentally, this is, this is, one of the, this is a, a brilliant business in the UK. It's a brilliant UK business. It's invested in technology. It spends a huge amount of its turnover on R&D, you know, much more than most engineering businesses. I think it's in the, in the mid-teens, something like that. Um, which compared to most industrial businesses is a lot more. Um, but then they continue to be innovative. Um, and, and what is interesting is that we, we spoke to the chief executive um, after the, the process had had had, had um, fallen through. And he said, well, actually, the really interesting thing from his perspective, he's not one of the founders, um, is that it actually validated a lot of what they're doing in terms of what, this, what, this, what the potential people were interested in. Is like these are the areas that they're investing in. These are the products that they're starting to, to, to bring out. So there's still obviously a, a, a kind of uncertainty of what's going to happen longer term. Um, in one sense, I'm not unhappy, if I'm honest, Mary, because actually there's, it's a unique business. It happens to be British. Um, I'm very happy that it's still quoted on the UK. I was, I was almost a bit more upset that we're going to lose that business. Um, so in one sense, you know, yes, the share price went down when the when the thing fell through, but actually from a long-term perspective to own a business which is in a lot of potential really exciting growth opportunities, it's not a bad thing. We're just going to have to see what happens with the founders, what, what they're going to go off and do. But again, long-term, you know, my view is let's let them think about it and reflect about it. They've always treated the minority shareholders um, very well. 
So I'm, I've got no concerns on, on that front. Um, but we'll see. But, you know, if, I would love it if it could still remain a UK-coated business because it is such a unique growth opportunity that, that's had and what they've done, what they've created here. Um, it, it's it's a, a business people should be really proud of. And another interesting um, company, which I think is currently your top holding, is Genus, mm -hmm. which is an animal genetics company aiming to make help farmers breed better pigs and cattle so they can make better meat and milk. Um, I've heard analysts say that it's a tricky company to understand and value. Can you tell us about this company and, and the investment case? Yeah, well, I, I think you, you, you summed it up really well, so I'm not going to try and top that because I, I think you've, you've got the real essence there. Um, what I think I, I would add to it is, is the fact that it, it's what is a problem? A lot of the, the problems in a lot of emerging markets and, and is, is that people want, as they get wealthier, they want to, to eat better. Um, and and the, the problem, therefore, for a lot of countries is, well, how do I make my, my farming more, more efficient? Because a lot of countries like China, traditionally like pigs, which are an important part of the diet and a growing part of the diet, it wasn't done in a, in a, bluntly on an industrial scale. It was all done in little small, for, small um, holdings. And you're also prone to kind of diseases breaking out because people weren't looking at it very, very, you know, you know a little farmer is not going to probably going to take as much care about it as, as a kind of a much more industrial concern. So a lot of policy makers around the world have been saying, look, we've got to, we've got to kind of do this more scientifically in a, in a sense. And this is where something like Genus comes in because they've got the technology um, to, to allow kind of you know, pig breeding, for example, to be done better. So actually for the farmers, they, they have a much better idea what the type of pigs that they're going to get. The quality of the pig is going to be better and therefore they get better yields for it. So there's a lot of reasons why this, this, this makes sense. The problem, as you, as, you, as you highlighted, is for people to try to understand, well, how do I value that? Because there's, there's really no other business like this in the world. There's smaller kind of farmer cooperatives in Denmark and so on that are trying to compete, but they're much smaller than, than Genus. Um, but what we're trying to do is to look at the growth, the opportunity that, that, that could be there. And, and it's saying, well, what happens if people in China want to eat more pork and better pork? You know, how's that going to happen? Well, this is where Genus really kind of comes in. And it's not just in emerging markets, also in, 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 um, in, in um, developed markets. So people want to eat better. They might eat less meat, you know, because people worry about, well, we're going to eat less meat. But they might, but they probably want to eat better meat when they do. So therefore, again, Genus is probably is, is, is part of this potential solution to that. So um, we're trying to think that long-term view rather than seeing the short-term where it looks very expensive. It's well, what is the alternative here? What's the long-term trend here? And we think the long-term trends are, are a tailwind for Genus. So that's why we continue to have a big holding in it. In terms of the long-term, what's, what's the long-term growth opportunity for Rightmove, which is another one of your top 10 holdings? Because... I might question if it's you know, how saturated the market is and how how much it correlates with house prices, the value of it. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's interesting. If you look at the business um, and how it's operated against um, people worry about the housing market, there's, there's, there's much smaller coloration than you might think. And that kind of gets back to the point of it's, it's become a must-have um, product. Um, you know, various competitors have tried to come in and people have been a bit worried about it. I mean, Google tried to get into it. Um, there's been one or two smaller businesses that have tried to compete against it, but they've not been able to kind of compete successfully against it. You know, it is the dominant player. If you want to sell your house, you have to have it on right move because that's where you're going to get the most people are going to look at it. So actually, although people like the estate agents don't like right move, 
Um, and, and the irony is, actually, Right Move was founded by a, by an estate agent, um, and then they sold it off, which is probably not the the, the cleverest thing they, they could have probably done. But you know, that's 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 the thing. Um, but the thing is, it's a it's a it's a must have product. So so actually, what what we like about it is the fact that they've always stayed very focused. They didn't try and take over the world. They just let's become the dominant player in the UK. Let's keep adding new services to it to make it better and better. And we've got some pricing power. Because the estate agents, whether they like it or not, they need it. Um, and other people have come in, tried to compete against it. But ultimately, um, I think it was, um, it was on the market, tried to do that and said, well, you can only use us or one other player. Well, actually, what, what it turned out was everyone certainly wanted to keep on right move. You know, why do you, you turn off the dominant player in the market? So, so I still see it as a kind of, it's a very interesting business. Um, very high margin, very, very, very profitable. But remember, they also, I think, behaved responsibly during the pandemic. That they gave um, holidays and discounts to, to, to estate agents. They recognised the fact. Look, the market's kind of closed for a period. The, the customers are, are, are really struggling here, so they kind of they, they gave big discounts to the price. Short term, that hits profits. But I think the long term, that's the right thing to do because you know you need you still need your estate agents there to be selling the product. So um, I think there's, it's a it's a kind of it's a funny relationship. I'm sure, um, as I say, you know, estate agents don't like them, but actually the fact they didn't exploit them when they were at the most vulnerable because they took the long term view of we need these people, we need these guys selling houses ultimately, but you still need right move, and that's why why we like it. Okay, so you don't think they'll have to move out of property to be able to continue to grow? Um, I don't think so. I mean, they looked at things like they've, they've been in things like rentals and, and things like that. But I think the thing is, it's more sometimes it's about focusing on what do people want and what are the additional services we can do. So it's things like, you know, um, giving stuff about the schools and the area and catchment areas, information that for a lot of people, it really matters where you're going to buy that house, you know. Two streets along, that's a big difference because it's a different catchment area, different school and things like that. So it's things like that, trying to understand what your customers want, which is a really important thing. I, I think if you're too busy trying to conquer the world and you're not really focusing on what your customers want, potentially you can you can lose that business. And that's why I think they've been very good is because they've always focused on it. They're, I think they're paranoid about that. They don't want to lose that dominant position. So they're always looking for innovation to, to kind of keep driving that business on. And another portfolio company um which has come under quite a bit of scrutiny is boohoo.com mm -hmm. so it's been criticized for having poor working conditions in its supply chain and in um in its factories in leicester so far this year the share price is down um over 40 percent what's your outlook for the future of boohoo.com yeah i mean i mean the first thing i i would say is it, it's i feel like you know it, it's a great british success story you know, if we step back and say, look, this is a very entrepreneurial business that started with nothing and it's grown into a, quite a large business, you know, rather than every kind of lines up to kind of to criticize it, we should be saying, look, this is the type of entrepreneurial business we need in this country um, that is actually globally doing really quite well. That, you know, whether, you know, we, we can all talk about, you know, what politicians want, but actually we need businesses like that to thrive. So that, that's my, my first point that let's give them a lot of credit for what they've done. You're right, though, that they've had challenges. You know, this is the problem with growing very quickly is you kind of have these growing growing pains. And it's been very public, but some of the supply chain issues in Leicester in particular are, are not good. Um, and that's something we've been engaging with the company about, saying, look, 
we feel you really feel you've got to deal with this because it, it could become a real problem for you and it could really impact your long-term growth story. So what we've been encouraged by is the fact that they do seem to address it. They've got an independent uh, Levinson um, to kind of come in to, 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 to kind of look at it um, and to see audit it and say, well, are they making progress? Now, that's that's happening. So that, that, I think that's that's we're not out of the woods yet, but they're certainly kind of encouraging signs. I think the other thing that's been going on, which is nothing to do with um, these ESG issues, is really the supply chain issues that, you know, I kind of referenced that earlier. And they have been impacted a bit by that in, in, in the short term. Um, so that's kind of had some kind of cost points. But the fact is that they're still growing 20, 25%. You know, most businesses would would kind of kill to have kind of growth rates like that. And where some people say, well, that's a bit disappointing. You think, well, hold on a second. This is not, not a disaster here. Um, but that, that, that's, just, that's the kind of things that we're kind of the kind of push pull. And then there's obviously the, the, the Chinese um, kind of online business that people are competing against, which are worried about, you know, is this going to be a, a problem? Um, it might be. But then again, it goes back to this point about having, why has this business been so successful? It's because it's got that entrepreneurial drive. It's, it's hired also a, a very good chief executive and then top, you know, used to you know, run Primark. So th- these are not fools that are running this business by any means. These are very smart people, very entrepreneurial, very competitive people. I'm not, you know, n- never say never, but if there's any business, I think it can adapt to these challenging conditions. I think it would be boohoo. Um, they're not the smoothest in, in, in kind of the, the, the PR, but that's because they're just learning this. But I'd rather invest in a business that's, you know, not perfect, but it's got that opportunity and is willing to learn and and, and get better at it. You know, that, and so that, that's why we still re- remain holders of it. Great. They certainly have managed to produce products that people want to buy. Also in the retail space, um, so that perhaps at the other end of the spectrum, I think you've bought M&S, I think, in your managed fund. I'm not sure if it's in the UK Growth Trust. It certainly timed its deal with Ocado very well um, last <laughs> yes. year. But what's your? Why are you? Why are you backing M and S? Yeah, well, it's not owned in the, in the in the trust at the moment, but it's it's one that we're, we're thinking about. But it's an interesting one. I mean, we haven't owned M and S for probably at least twenty five years uh, in Bailey Gifford, so it, you know it, we really have to go back a long time before we've owned it. Um, and, and the reason was, you know, for obvious reasons, um, it wasn't a growth business. You know, it, it had a dominant market share in the UK and it's kind of just, it's been eroded over time. Various management teams have kind of come in and, and basically tried to turn it around and, you know, it hasn't really worked. So what's, what's changed? Well, the one thing we always thought was they, they, they had a very good food business, um, but they lack that distribution. And as you said, Mary, they've done that that joint venture with Acado in the UK, which is really kind of, you know, basically t- t- timed up with... T- t- lined up, sorry, with the, with, the, with the best technology business in that area, in the world, probably. Um, so that's a great kind of growth opportunity for them. Um, and as you say, you know, the timing, that, that, that's, that's luck. You know, no, obviously, they, no, nobody saw the pandemic. But the thing that, that we've, for our other funds, where we, we've started to take a position in is, well, what we were worried about the rest of the business was the clothing and, and so on. You know, is there any value in that? Is it basically just a terrible business that's going to go ex-growth and it's just declining? Um, we're now starting to say, well, actually, maybe it's not quite as, you know, there might be a growth story here. That actually they've used this um, pandemic to really reset the business and get it back into, you know, you know, despite the fact that everybody pretends that they've never shop at M&S, you know, they sell more jeans in the UK than anyone else. 
um, you know, they, 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 in various kind of categories, they are still the biggest player in the UK. So actually, despite the fact that they haven't done something, a very good job, there's a fantastically loyal customer base there. But actually, I think they've, they've been revamping it. And actually, uh, you know, dare I say it, people are starting to shop at M&S again. Not, you know, and that's a good thing. So actually, I think this business might be turning around and it's a very much a might because we've been here before and it hasn't worked. But what I think is different is the fact that I think management um, are very cognitive of the problems uh, and they're starting to deal with some of the kind of the, the poor shops that they've had. You know, the fact that one of the problems is they, they've got, they're locked into some quite expensive leases with some kind of pretty shabby businesses, you know, shabby shops. And they say, well, why do we keep, you know, we'll run them for cash. Now, in the short term, if you're a, if you're a bean counter, that makes sense. But honestly, Mary, if you go into one of one or two of those shops, they look awful because they're not they're not putting any money into them, and it really damages the brand. And I think the new management team get that now that that's that's short term that may be painful, but actually, if we don't move these shops or you know or do something about them, that's what damages the business because people say, oh, it's really awful. But then if you go into one of the new stores that they've been in, I don't know, Mary, you've done that. They're actually pretty good. They're actually pretty impressive. Now, I'm not just that my, my wife kind of came in and said, that's actually not bad, actually. So, you know, it's things like that. So it's not just, so I, I think there's a perception thing there that might be changing. Interesting. Well, I'll have to go down and have a look. I know that <laughs> my mum's definitely a loyal M&S customer. <laughs> <laughs> um, sorry, we're, we're getting close to the end, but just a couple more questions. Draper Esprit, the European tech-focused VC, has done very well this year, which might then naturally uh, lead to questions about valuations. How, how do you feel about the, the coming years for Draper Esprit? Yeah, well, they, they, they kind of just issued um, a trading update last week, which um, was actually better than expected. So the, the portfolio is performing very well. Um, so so the, the share price is about just over about 10% higher than the net asset value at, at the end of September. So I don't think it's an excessive valuation. The company's got net cash on its balance sheet, about 150 million, something like that. Um, so it's got opportunities to, to, to invest. Now, the thing why we like about like, like it, Draper, is the fact that um, they have this opportunity to invest in these private earlier stage businesses. Um, and despite the fact that people kind of assume that the UK and Europe is kind of like there's no technology businesses, actually there are. Um, and they have been able to invest in a number of them at kind of quite early stages. And, and Draper is a kind of way to kind of play that game, as, as it were. Um, and, and actually, to be fair to them, they've, they've also been able to exit a number of businesses at quite good prices. So it's not so they're recycling their capital back into kind of new areas, which is kind of interesting. Um, but and it's not just in the UK; it's also in Europe. So it, it, it's there's a lot of interesting areas and my colleagues and my European colleagues are kind of, have been saying this for a while that actually, you know, again, if you look at the cliche or oh, Europe's a terrible place to invest, not true. There's actually some really interesting businesses there and there's some very interesting kind of private unquoted businesses and Draper allows us to, to invest in some of them. So that, that's, that's why we continue to like it. And final question, if you had to pick one company that you're most excited about in terms of what it's doing and capacity for growth what what company would it be and why oh gosh um i i, I always struggle to say that because i i, I think there's so many businesses and, and a number of the numbers I've, I've, we've talked about so far are all really interesting i'll give you one that i, I haven't, we haven't talked about which is very different it's a company called naked wines which is um 
it came out of Ultimate Majestic Wines. You may remember that, but they, they sold the Majestic Wines and, and what they focused on is, is, is the direct-to-consumer business. And what I think is really interesting about this business is it's disrupting the classic, you know, you go through a distributor. So actually, it's a great deal for the, the consumer who kind of signs up, they, they get good wine at a cheap price. But it's also great for the wine growers because they don't then have to pay through a middleman. So actually, they, they keep more money as well. So actually, what, what Naked Wines are doing is actually uh, allowing both the, 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 the kind of wine grower and the consumer to kind of get a good deal, which, which is an interesting kind of model. So it, it, it's different. It's still kind of – but also what's interesting is the fact that they've been successful in the U.S., so, so I, I'm sure you, you'll know as, as well as anyone, it's so difficult for many British businesses to crack the US. Early signs are that they're doing, they're doing something really interesting there because it's, you know, it's not for the kind of person that's wanting to buy a cheap bottle of plonk in the supermarket. It's for people who are really interested in wine and the story and, you know, where's this wine come from and who are the growers and all this stuff. You know, you, you might be rolling your eyes at that, but but some people really like that. And as you can imagine, the US, there's lots of people are really interested in that. So so I think it's a really interesting kind of business model. Um, it's one that, it, it, you know, it, it's kind of pretty unique um, and it's got a very entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial management team there um, that's trying to grow the long business for the long term. So they're investing now. So it's a classic business. It doesn't make any money at the moment, but I think they're storing up a lot of value for the future. So that that's a kind of inter- an interesting business I, I think is really exciting. Yeah, I'm not rolling my eyes at all. I got a voucher with a big discount from them, which um, <laughs> bought a case of wine and it helped me get through lockdown. So. Oh, well, that's good. <laughs> Hopefully, hopefully the wine was good was it good it was it was very good it was yeah. very good it was sort of the price i would normally spend with my 75 pound discount <laughs> <laughs> but much better quality than what i would normally drink <laughs> anyway um ian thank you so much for your time that's been really really interesting and i'm sure our listeners will greatly appreciate it thank good. you good to chat thank you mary hi This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., 